Welcome everyone listening and watching this on YouTube. This is a special episode of the Programmatic Digest podcast. We're recording live from our community call on Fridays. And we have a special guest, Niels, that's going to talk to us about identity, all things identity from a publisher perspective. Um, but before we get this in a traditional fashion on every community call, we ask the community to share two wins and a challenge that they may have gone through in the last couple of weeks, the last month and so. So we're just going to take the next maybe five minutes to do that, y'all. Who wants to share two wins and a challenge? Uh, yeah, I can go ahead and go <clears throat> share some wins and some challenges. How are we doing, everybody? Uh, let's see. You know, I like to do a personal and a, and a professional. Yes. So personal, I'll say that um, I guess, I, well, no, personal, I'm about to finish uh, the book I've been reading for the past month. Um, oh, cool. so Which one? I'm reading right now the autobiography of Malcolm X right now. So oh, cool. uh, yeah, pr pretty long book, but a very rewarding book. And uh, I'm going to finish that up. And uh, I can't wait to deep dive into that some more. Mm -hmm. uh, so a professional win would be um, had a meeting with some internal team of mine to just go over a future strategy change that we might feel might be better for a client that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And we always seem to be in agreement of the new strategy um, that we want to come about to present to our client. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, we did some research and we found some some wins that we thought we could, we could present and everybody agrees. So now it's on to the point of uh, creating those necessary benchmarks that can reflect on the new strategy that we're going with and then present that to the client. So hopefully by uh, the next IO for quarter two, uh, we'll have that new strategy up and rolling and go from there. Oh, cool. Um, Very cool. Yes. No, no, I appreciate that. And then uh, a challenge. I do want to say uh, still, uh, I guess, to, to the same token of the reason why we're going with, with this different strategy for, for the future is because the challenge is still, uh, it's a CTR campaign right now. Mm -hmm. And just do, deal with the challenge of that, uh, trying different methods and whatnot. Um, still not at, at the goal per se. We still got a, a month to go with time. Um, I just, I, I want it all. I want my cake and the habit and eating too, or whatever the expression <laughs> is. So, yeah. Uh, just trying to have that both, but no, we'll figure it out and we'll get it going. But like I said, in the long run, we got something figured out. So I'm happy about that. That's really, really cool. Thank you for, thank you for sharing. Uh, it's always good when you, you come up with a, the team and then discuss something and everybody is like, yes, let's do this. It's always a win. So like, great job. Okay. Let's, let's hear two more, two more wins. I mean, two more people's wins and challenges before we, we start the interview. Who wants to share? I can go. Go, girl. Uh, all right, I'm gonna do the same thing. Two wins, one personal and one professional and challenge. So for a personal goal, uh, I feel like things are coming along at my new house. So that's been great. Yes. So everything's organized. I feel like every week is just great. I put up painter's tape last night. I just feel like things are just going well. Um, <laughs> From a professional standpoint, I'm actually um, getting to meet some key stakeholders in our business. Um, nice. We have a constant changing strategy. So being a startup in a startup world, um, that's that's the norm. But just being able to meet with like the decision makers is definitely going to nice. help with our uh, campaign strategies from marketing perspective moving forward. So really excited about that. Nice. Um, a challenge is... Now that we have direct access to key stakeholders, there'll be a lot more questions, a lot more engagement, which could be a win as well. But the challenge is just like being a smaller team, but really um, keeping track and keeping up with the requests that are coming in. But excited for that challenge. It's definitely something of growth. And so, yeah. That is super dope. Okay. Well, sounds Sounds really interesting. Um, sounds great, especially the the personal win. I think that's a that's a good win to have. It's like nice when you move into a new homes and there's less boxes. It brings, it brings peace. Yeah, right. It brings peace and clarity. Ah, all right, one more person who wants to join uh, in on the two wins and a challenge, and then we'll hear all about Niels. I can go if no one else is going. Go ahead, Carrie. Hello. Hey, I'm on break in my car. Sorry. So, um, <laughs> so one win and I'll start with the personal too. So one personal win, I just did my taxes yesterday and I was able to claim all the renovations we did for our multifamily home oh, nice. that we've got. Yeah. So my tax return looks nice and I'm happy about that. <laughs> That's, um, <good>. yeah. <laughs> That's a win. 
<laughs> and then another like a professional win is I am diving headfirst into completing certifications. I'm feeling great about myself. I'm reading a bunch of articles. That's so dope. that's a win. Mm-hmm. And then challenge probably be, I think it's still my gas bill. <laughs> like Carrie has had a gas bill challenge for the last three weeks. Three months in a row. Oh, I'm sorry. Five hundred dollar gas bill. I could cry. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, it's, it's very yeah. Don't cry. Just just laugh about it. It's it's temporary. Uh, summer is almost hey, here. Yes. <clears throat> You're also in like one of the coldest states in Zimmerkas, which is what Rhode Island. You're up yeah. north. You're up there. So New England, we're called New England, New England. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing, Carrie. We're, our hearts and prayers goes to you. And that and my guest. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's, let's get this interview started, y'all. Niels was referred to me. I came across Niels via a really, really uh, cool friend of mine. Her name is Sophie Toth. And Sophie Toth is one of the founders of the Women in Programmatic Network. Um, any woman on the call, if you're interested in joining the Women in Programmatic Network, it's just a global network where programmatic, anybody in ad tech, female ad tech professionals can come together. We have a WhatsApp chat. It's really dope. It's really dope. If you're interested and anyone listening and watching the YouTube again, I'll have the information in the description, but the community, I can email you all, put you in contact, you're good. So she reached out to me and say, you need to talk to Niels. He's just thebomb.com. And I was like, cool, whoever you refer is thebomb.com. So here's Niels. Niels, thank you for joining us on our community call slash podcast episode. We're excited to talk to you about some um, identity things, but Niels has a very, very interesting, like it's, he's just dope. Let me just say that. So how about you just take the next maybe two minutes, to three minutes to introduce yourself to those who don't know you yet what you do, who you are, and how, how you came about doing programmatic. Sure. Uh, thanks so much, Helen. Super happy to be here. Uh, and thank you, Sophie, as well, for the introduction. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's pretty badass, badass lady. I'm having <laughs> the time of my life working with her. Uh, yeah, so basically, me, I am from Montreal. So, Carrie, you said it's cold up there where you guys are in Montreal. As of right now, it's absolutely freezing. Uh, but I'm pretty lucky because I get to work remotely, like a lot of people in this industry do. So, right now, I'm in Spain, Valencia, where we're having about 20 degree weather this weekend. And that's absolutely fantastic for me because that means I get to send selfies on the beach and make all my friends back in Montreal very jealous as they're icing their car and throwing salt on the road and whatnot. That's so, included. That's included. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so very happy about that. Um, my relationship, I guess, in this industry, as probably everybody, it's like a bit of a love-hate relationship, right? It's love in the sense that, you know, you're very passionate about it, but hate at the same time because... There's just so much always going on and, you know, you can kind of pull your hair, like hair out sometimes, but at the end of the day, we wouldn't be doing it if we didn't love it, right? So as Helen said, I'm kind of on the publisher side of the business, been doing this for about six years, right? So this has been, I guess in the business now, six years makes you like a little bit of an old timer, uh, just because of how fast everything moves. And I started really investing a lot of like my time, my early days in programmatic and really understanding the ins and outs of competition. And, you know, I've been around since before header bidding was even a thing, right? So maybe not a lot of, uh, you know, publishers here, but if you had to like build back chains and pass back advertisers, yeah, I come back from those days from from before <laughs> where now everything's much more seamless. But I'll say that if, Programmatic was kind of like my high school sweetheart. Uh, data and identity is kind of like my my new impassioned mistress. Yeah. You know, it's really, I think, the way that things are going, where everything's moving forward. And yeah, I'm, I'm also here because I want to hear what, you know, you guys, what your guys' thoughts are on this. Of course, I have a very uh, unique perspective coming from the publisher side of things. So we have, of course, our strategies and the way that I see moving forward. You guys uh, might have some questions or might have some insights on, on the best strategies for you. But I think opening up a dialogue now is more important because it used to be the case where kind of cookies were this 
intermediary that publishers didn't really have to think about. You know, you got like the, the buy side would be able to look at that and then they would be able to, to bid on that and buy on, on that data. But now that that's going away, I think we're at an interesting point where, you know, everybody should come together as an, as an industry and figure out exactly like how do we how do we make all of this work in a way that makes sense for everybody? Is it going away for real though? Cause I don't know, <laughs> you know, it keeps going. What is it now? What did Google tell us recently? Is it 2024, 2025? I can't, I, I don't keep up anymore. I don't give up. And actually one of my first questions to you was, do you, <laughs> do you agree with the term cookie less? Is it time for us to expire this term, retire the term as an industry? Um, like how, how do you define the cookie less future? especially in the case of identity solutions? Yeah, that's a great question. So do I think that cookies are going away? I know Google has been kind of pushing back (laughs) on this for a while now, and it's kind of becoming like a long running joke, like, oh, they're (laughs) they're still pushing back. Um, But I do think that is kind of the future of the way that everything's going ultimately. Mm Consumers are finding more and more uh, problems with the way that people are advertising and and privacy, even like regulations among amongst governments. You know, they're becoming more strict and more strict. So even if Google keeps pushing back this deprecation, I think that's something that we need to have always at the top of our mind because we don't want to all of a sudden wake up one day and be like, oh wow, no more cookies. What are we going to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and apologies, apologies. What was the second part of your question? Like, should we retire or expire the term? Like, oh, is it cookie. still relevant? Uh, yeah. So I guess there is also, yeah, some confusion about, about cookies and, and exactly what they are, even with, you know, some of the more experienced like data programmatic people that I talk to, because yeah. cookies, as far as a third party cookie, these, this is what's going away. Right. So it was like the wild west, basically, I think cookies, right. And it is still kind of the wild west. Yeah. Anybody right now on like a Chrome browser for the most part can come and you perform some type of action that they like and, and cook you. And even if you have no relation to the website whatsoever, right. If I'm advertising something and then you, you perform some type of action, that action can get cookied and then I can track you anywhere across the web. Right. So that is kind of where that is what, you know, Firefox, Safari, that's what they've deprecated already. And I think that is, you know, the, the cookie term that's going away. But first party cookies, you know, that is something that is here to stay, right? So you can call that pixels, you can call it, you know, unique identifiers, you can call that PPID, whatever you want to call it at the end of the day. It's a unique identifier that gets stored on a user's browser that's housed within, you know, the, the context of a website, right? If the data that I own on that user as a publisher or as um, even, you know, a, any type of website basically is still something that is going to stick around, right? And, and users want that to stick around because if I add something to my cart on, my, on a website and then I leave it for a little bit, I want to come back. I, like it's a good user experience if that stays saved on that website. So yeah. party cookies, I think, are here to stay. I think that the malicious um, ways of third-party cookies are, are what should be uh, deprecated. I also want to mention to an add on to what you said is that historically cookies, just like what Neil said, y'all, was created for the user experience, meaning you and I going into my our Amazon app, looking at the most recent search or, you know, there's an option that says pick up where you left off or look at similar items of what you've purchased before. These are just a customization. And this is what we mean when we talk about cookies, personalization, like that personalized experience for the user. So historically, a cookie was created for the publisher and to make sure that the consumer that comes on the publisher's site still has that experience, right? Like it's not annoying. You got to start from scratch, like he said. But we've abused of it. It was our crack, all right? Um, for our OGs, people that have worked in the industry for five years plus, we went through a lot of like ups and downs and there's just big things that happen at some point in the programmatic and ad tech careers of the world where we called it big data and it was sexy and cookies were used for that big data. So first party data is when somebody owns trans- uh, the cookie activities, right? To some extent. Third-party data is when one of the data providers owns it for us and they package us and then deploy it in a DSP. But second-party data, I've honestly never used it. I don't know if you use it, Niels, or if it still exists. But from my understanding, if it's like 
let's say if Walmart, which is a, a big brand in the US, wanted to buy Target, which is another brand in the US, first party data, then they will go directly to Target and set up that relationship. And that's considered second party data, I believe, but I've never had to use it. Hi, did you know that at Ellen Parker Consulting, we now offer an accelerator program where we attract, recruit, and train future marketers. And their training include a six weeks program where they cover programmatic landscape, um, industry, important industry trends, the differences between targeting placement and targeting mix and their best practices, including optimization and reporting hacks. Um, and they're able to set up, manage and monitor a campaign, a demo campaign in the trade desk, everything including audience selection, inventory optimization, SPO, creative upload, brand safety, you name it. They're able to do it at the end of the six weeks program. So if you are part of the 90% of employers struggling to find a skilled candidate today and not willing to spend $14,900 on a bad hire, according to Zipia, give us a call. Let's discuss which one of our five to 10 juniors available every month is the perfect fit for your team. Clients who have hired our juniors have shared that we were able to help them save one to two months on boarding with those juniors. Give us a call right now and let's discuss the solution with you. Um, so is that still a thing, second party data? I think it is still a thing, but it's not, unless you're a really large publisher, I mm -hmm. think that it's not that common to use second party yeah. data. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought too. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Because the thing is with second party data, a lot of it is if I'm ingesting, you know, an advertiser's second party data, this is how publishers typically think of, of second party data at the very least, right? Yeah. So basically if one like we'll use walmart as the example they'll come to us and say hey you know we want you to be able to like match with our audience and then we can onboard our audience via you know some type of uh third integration that's not going to you know allow you to see the data but basically it would be a um a merge of the users that you have with the users that we have and then from there we'll be able to you know find common ground and target the same people right so that's kind of what they're thinking of in terms of okay maybe i can use my declared audiences like my emails or something like that match it with the emails that you have and then any type of action that my um, first party data performs i can then retarget back on your website but again unless you're a very large publisher a lot of the times you're not going to have the same audiences that perform these types of actions on your websites, right? So it's very rare for us to find like very scalable campaigns in a second mm -hmm. party. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I think that's a good segue into the conversation, the topic of the day, like identity. If we had to ask why we even in this cookie list future conversation is if we had to really recap into one challenge is data privacy, right? So I had Sarah Polly on the podcast a few months ago and quoted her in the Reach and Frequency course, actually. She said, and I'm going to read the quote, she said, data privacy has become a growing concern for consumers. Users are asking for more control over how their data is collected and used. In response to big brands like Safari, Google, Chrome, and Facebook have opted to phase out third-party cookies to meet both regulatory restrictions and rising users' expectation of privacy. So the short answer is that if you're even thinking about like, why are we even doing this? How, what, what happened all of a sudden with the whole cookies is data privacy. It's like, we're trying to get better, like actually Niels mentioned. And why is Chrome such, has such a big impact in our industry? It's like last time I checked, I think Chrome owned like 63% of the market share. Um, maybe it's higher now, but it's a big, it's a big number. <laughs> it's a big number, right? So yeah. when we talk about, when we talk about the impact of, of what Google is doing to us, it impacts like you, like Neil said, targeting for us buyers, but also it impacts measurement. Cause now we don't know if those people came back, if, you know, it's, it's hard to attribute the credit to which channel sent it because it's not only affecting programmatic it's affecting Facebook, it's affecting all of all of them. So deals, talk to us about like when, what was the biggest challenge? What is this the same challenge from a publisher perspective? And then let's go ahead and talk about like 
the solutions? What are the solutions from a publisher perspective? Sure. Um, so attribution from a publisher's perspective. Well, yeah. What does that look like? Like, what is it? Yeah. So, so to be honest with you, attribution from a publisher's perspective, if you were to ask a publisher that probably a couple of years ago, they'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, even I think that if you asked a lot of publishers that question now, they'd be like, I don't I, I don't understand the question because attribution is such a by side term. Right. But mm, recently, is everybody like now starting to become much more aware of you know what it is that is driving up the CPMs. That's now why we understand what attribution is. Right. So I didn't really care about attribution when everybody could get targeted. But now that if I look at my iOS traffic and I see mm -hmm. that advertisers spend on iOS traffic is maybe a third of what it is or up to a fifth of what it is on Google Chrome, that's when people are starting to like look at this and be like, OK, why is that really the case? Attribution yeah. is a part of that. Right. Because uh, let's go back to our Amazon um, add to cart example mm -hmm. it like how valuable is that user that you know has added something to cart but then you can't target them again, right so if if i can do that on on chrome then of course my users that that we know that have added things to cart are, have become extremely valuable in in an attribution sense and you're willing to pay those extra high cpms for those users right mm -hmm. um so from our perspective yeah we would love we would love it if uh, attribution on iOS was something that could be attributed because again, it just, it helps us because our CPMs get better and then it helps the whole industry because that means that you guys can buy better. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, I think for us, we, we want data attribution to be a thing because that just means that at the end of the day, we get more value from the user. That's true. That's true. Um, and it's the same for on the buy side, like you said, being able to attribute. I mean, we got to we got to measure things. We got to know what's working or not. And that's that's a big thing of attribution. Now, how do you identify the different identity partners when you're working or and a partner for the buy side would be like, who else can give us this this identity data? Right. Let me just pull up really quick the different solution out there. And then, Niels, I love your perspective on it. So we have Google Privacy Sandbox, okay, mm -hmm. which is owned by the Google. Um, we have the API, I think it's Trust Token API and Flock. Is that still a thing? I think Flock flopped, right? Yeah. <laughs> Bad mom joke. Flock flopped. Yeah. Um, but now they replaced it with categories, I believe. And then I'll move on to the universal ID solution, which is very popular, led by the trade desk and now some of the major, you know, vendors in the industry. We're at Unified 2.0 right now. And then lastly, there's something that we call ID and device graph, which is mainly just, so the difference between ID graph and device, I mean, ID device graph and uh, ID solution, <laughs> UID, is that UID is very much uh, from hashed email, okay? So like the person has to have submitted their information with hashed email. But this one, the device graph is mainly pieced together ideas from online and offline channels to create centralized view of consumer. So um, LiveRam has a device graph, TapAd has a device graph, Infosum, Zeotap, you name it. And so the difference is, is that they're collecting multiple IDs from different channels and just matching it. I think that's a good segue into the last example, which is data clean rooms. That's what data clean rooms are picking up. So if you don't know exactly the difference and you kind of lost in the definition of each, I can, I can help you understand this and I can send you some information. So don't worry, but just know that there are different type of identity solution partners out there. And the best way to look at how to to select them is how, how, how do you look at partners deals and look at and understand like which one works best? That's a great question as well. And I think that um, our answer to this is going to be very different from a buy side answer. Okay. The reason why this is because as, as a publisher, right, we, we are the ones that kind of own the audiences, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so ID solutions. Now that you cannot, target somebody with a third-party cookie, it means that in order for their ID solutions to be anything, they, they can't now just like target people on our website and just place a cookie on users. They The ID solutions need us to integrate on their website so they can actually provide something. So we're now the ones that are basically pay, placing the, the code for the ID solutions 
right? To, to be able to match these users. Mm -hmm. So my strategy, and I think what everybody in the publishing industry strategy has been on this so far is what is the harm in integrating with all of the ID solutions, right? Oh, they, okay. Yeah. So for our end, they don't cost us anything because they want basically the user information. Um, so we integrate with as many as possible, and I think it's going to really battle out to see which one is kind of the winner. But yeah, I think from your guys' perspective, you have to be a lot more picky because in order to kind of get the information from the ID solution, you have to pay to decrypt it, right? So I'm sure there's a huge kind of, I guess, rush to understand, okay, which ID solution works well with us? Like what, which ones are, are, are there using? But before this call, I was like thinking about that question quite a bit. Yeah. Because even us at, at Dexerto, you know, we have a pretty robust audience extension strategy yeah. mm -hmm. where we're going to, you know, expand our audience off our website. And right now it's kind of limited to cookies, but this has also started us like getting us to think, okay, like what is, what is the best ID solution for us if cookies were to go away? And, you know, we had to kind of figure out the best way to target people. And I guess it, these are the two types of ID solutions that I would like to kind of highlight. Okay. Um, there's the deterministic type of ID solutions, right? So these are your live ramps, your UIDs by trade desk, the, the ones that you were talking about really with device graphs and rely on hashed emails. Mm -hmm. So I think these uh, ID solutions can be extremely valuable for DSPs and buyers because um, you can relate this back to very defined like absolute information, right? Again, if we're going back to our add to cart example, I know from an email, it's going to be the same email throughout the web. So if I'm breaking down that hashed email, then I know the person that added to cart over here is the same person that's now, you know, uh, reading it's about. Hashed, yeah, it's they've exactly. signed in. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's a one-to-one -one relationship. So yeah. being able to determine like any type of flow that you're trying to target a user for, a deterministic type of ID solution is, I think, the one that you want to go for. But um, the thing is with these is that this is going to drastically reduce your scale, scale. right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. As right. publishers, we're really bad at collecting emails, I think, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think a really good publisher, you might have max about a 15% audience engagement with email, oh, right? Wow. I don't think... Yeah, it's, it's not going to be, and that's a really good metric. If I heard somebody say to me like, yeah, we got our, uh, our percentage of audience, uh, to, uh, it's now 15% are logged in users. I'd be like, wow, that's incredible. How did you do that? Because mm -hmm. it's not, it's a, it's a strategy that you really have to think about and really have to like understand, you know, what, what your, um, yeah value proposition to your user at that point to give them to get them to give you an email right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then you have the other types of id solutions which i think from a publisher standpoint uh, and what we're trying to do with audience extension uh, makes mm -hmm. a lot more sense and these are like the probabilistic style uh, id solutions right, right so these right, are right. like your mm -hmm. live ramp, or sorry not your live ramp your id5 for example would be a good example of or intent iq i believe also is a, a probabilistic so basically what you're saying here is same thing i integrate with these guys on page and then they're matching uh, many different user behaviors and saying okay we think that this person over here is the same as this person over here right it's maybe not 100 percent, but we've got a pretty good you know thought process and we've got a pretty good way of identifying and we're pretty sure that these guys are the same mm -hmm. so for me, when I look at that, right, and if I'm, again, using this for something like audience extension, that's mm -hmm. actually extremely valuable because yeah. even if it's not 100% my user, but I'm trying to target somebody at the very end of the day, it means that I'm targeting somebody very similar to my user that I want to target, yeah. right? So it, that, what it does, it actually increases my audience reach versus a cookie solution even, right? Um, so on the DSP side, you might be able to think of this as, a very beginning of the funnel also type of of targeting mm -hmm. so not necessarily people that i want like very like not necessarily a very direct relationship with that user but somebody that i want to get maybe starting to think about my brand or my offering or something like that that's um all right i want to highlight a few things so if i was reading a book i would be highlighting a lot of what you're saying right so when when you're in your DSP, this my buyers are here in the streets. When you're in your DSP and then you're looking at your DMP, your internal DMP within the DSP, how to kind of easily spot the 
probabilistic segments versus deterministic, right? Obviously deterministic, maybe CRM based, first party based, you name it. But like mm-hmm. sometime you'll go through your DMP and then you'll see things like multi-generational household, highly likely or high likely or high probability that this, or you'll see keywords like, if you see keywords like low probability or low something, high something, uh, medium confidence, high confidence, or I've heard uh, high affinity, low affinity. If you see anything with low, high, any keyword that is determined a, a quantity of something as a segment, like highly likely, like I said, those are probabilistic data segments, okay? Um, versus like specific in market. But again, most deterministic data segments will be something like a CRM, even if like you're running in a trade desk and they have UID 2.0 available. Because most of those segments that you see, even though this says it's a probability, sometimes it's mixed together. If it's separated, it's most likely only probabilistic, but sometimes they mix deterministic and probabilistic together as well. So you just got to be careful. Um, so I like the fact that what Niels is talking about is like the type of data and where the solution fits within that data. So that's why it's really important to understand some of those, you know, like the source, what kind of data is what. Is everybody cool with the definition? Is that y'all, y'all good if you go home? Or I mean, if you see your, your grandparents this weekend and they ask you the difference between deterministic and probabilistic data, will y'all be able to, uh, to explain that to them or to a five-year-old? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> I've tried with my grandparents and I unfortunately have gotten no. <laughs> Did we not have this conversation about explaining to our parents? I mean, we always... We always have this conversation as programmatic ninjas, like, what do we do? What are, what are your parents or family members just don't know? Okay, cool. Um, does anybody has questions so far? I think I have a question. Um, just trying, I guess, say it or ask it the right way. Um, so just, uh, Niels and, and Ella, for that part, um, when it comes to, like, ID solutions, just the overall grand scheme, is it, do you approach it different for, like, a, or would the approach be to the solution be different depending on the diversity of the audience campaign? Like, would it be different for a quote-unquote multicultural campaign audience as opposed to a standard campaign audience, if that made any sense? Uh, I guess it really does depend on what you're trying to achieve. Um, Because, yeah, you know, you have some ID solutions which do pass back also some type of data along with the ID, right? So, you, you know, NLP and AI is like a new thing within this industry. And now you're starting to see new types of identity identity solutions pop up that not only do they pass you back just like an ID, which allows you to, you know, retarget users and frequency cap, but it also gives you the ability to you know, know a little bit more on that audience based on the way that that identity provider has, has categorized it. Um, so if that's kind of what you're looking for and you want to be able to use an identity solution to target and understand more audiences, then yeah, I think that it it makes sense to look into which one you, you want to use. But if you're just trying to, you know, target users on mass and just make sure that, you know, you've got a broad campaign and make sure that you, you know, you don't over serve and annoy users, then, you know, you can go for something general. Mm -hmm. And again, if you want to target some of the people that have perform specific actions and then it would be something else. So yeah, really depending on what your KPIs of that campaign would make a difference in terms of which identity solution to use at that point. I also want to say like, so identity is just helping us, like I said, measure and target better, right? Um, In this new world. Um, It's a targeting, it's an audience targeting tactic. But I think that's why when you talk about how to live or strategize in a cookie-less world. Again, we don't know if we're going to retire the term, but you have to layer more than just audience. Our industry has heavily, you know, again, we, we really depended on the audience. And now we're realizing like, oh, we can reach this audience via other things. So we talk about contextual, you talk about how to use your first party data a little bit better. So if you hear this conversation and you're like, I'm still hella confused who to work with. It's not so much about, just working with this one solution, you're going to have to test different one, of course, based on your client's needs, like Neil says, but you're still going to have to layer different type of tactic because 
because one is not the, the only solution to how we do programmatic. So think about an ID solution partner, but also think about a contextual, advanced contextual targeting partner. Um, think about what Niels mentioned at the, at the beginning of the conversation, which was partnering direct with some of those publishers and some networks and some of those supply partners, I would call them. Think about first party, which again, you'll need a partner to help you really model this. Or if you have something like, I don't know, the trade desk, you have the ability to do it directly into the DSP. So it's not just one solution. It's like, how many are we going to be able to layer that makes sense for our goal, for our clients? And then once we start attacking each in details, how to look at it, deterministic probabilistic, device ID graph, how large of the data we're trying to target, how niched is it? Um, so it's basically the same thing we've been doing. It's just now we have to be more creative in the partnership, okay? And some of the DSP makes it easy for us. Like the trade desk gives us some of this already in it. But if you're using another, another DSP, then you might have to reach out and build that network and build that relationship with those partners because the more you talk to them, the more you can understand how it can fit for your clients if it fits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And one thing that I'd like to add to that as well is that um, I'm not sure that it all kind of lays in the hands of the identity providers and yeah. the DSP to figure this out. I actually think the publishing, like my side of the industry, has not played like a large enough role in kind of pushing this forward. Because I think that we can be the ones that actually do provide a lot of the data that, you know, DSPs and uh, advertisers are looking for, right? Yeah. Again, we as users, we know who they are and we know what they're doing on our page. So I think that um, publishers have been kind of lacking in, in the way that they've, you know, been able to push that information into the bid stream. And I think that within mm -hmm. the next couple of years, that might be more the case. You know, we're seeing solutions. You know, you talked a little bit before about... Uh, Google Flock, how that's dying, but now they've actually, uh, they've started picking up IAB's seller-defined audience, and uh -huh. basically what that What's is, that? is, yeah, What's that? that's essentially IAB saying kind of the same thing that I'm saying, saying like, okay, well, we already have, you know, pre-bid, right, we can already pass things through the bid stream via pre-bid, why not use this to come up with some type of content taxonomy or audience taxonomy that all publishers can get on board with, create out these these types of categories and then just pass that directly to to the dsps and the ssps so they can they can bid on it and i think from a publisher's perspective for me i think that's the ideal world right because my problem happens when there's no longer a perfect competition within the programmatic space if one identity partner has data upon a user with their nlp and then another DSP and SSP isn't working with that identity partner, that means that they're not going to be able to necessarily compete as well within the bid as, as the uh, individual with the identity, right? So as a publisher, I actually have a lot of uh, interest in being able to pass back this information to as many DSPs and all, as many buyers as possible, because on my end, the person with the highest bid wins. So that's, that's, I think, where publishers need to come together and start doing this a little bit more pro proactively, you know, passing things into the bid stream, using ISB, IAB SDAs or some other type of, of way of categorizing our content, and then working directly with DSPs and saying, hey, I'm, I'm passing back this data. This is user data that we've classified and what we can tell you the classifications. And yeah, it's free and open for you guys to bid on. And I think each publisher can be responsible for how they want to manage that because, you know, we, for example, there are some, there's some data points that maybe we want to just leverage for our direct relationships and not pass into the bid stream. So working directly, as you said before, with buyers. But for the most part, if I'm trying to create a landscape where everybody can buy and compete evenly, then I, I wouldn't see why publishers won't want to move in that direction. Okay. So basically this IAB sellers taxonomy is going to, create this language that every single publisher is going to speak right that's so that we're all on the same page right for the most part i mean okay. so there's still going to be some discrepancy in some ways right, right? so because nothing is 100 percent. yeah exactly. yeah I okay because like uh, for example uh i can use the same name for rpg game right but mm -hmm. you know between one publisher to the next they might classify <clears throat> 
differently. You know, they might say, oh, this game's an RPG game and this mm-hmm. game they'll say is an MMO game or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there might be differences in classification there. But for the most part, if we're all using kind of the same naming convention and the same taxonomy, I think that just allows everybody to kind of buy on the same parameters and really scale out their, their audience buys, basically. Okay, two things, y'all. Anybody worked with with what he, he mentioned, taxonomy? Anybody? So it's okay if fun. you haven't. <laughs> All right, I have. <laughs> I have on the buy side. And we had to use something like MediaOcean or an ad serving tech that allows you to tag every single placement the same way based on those criteria. And oh man, I wish I had a... Dang, if I find an example, I'll share with you all. But it is a very robust process because you have to tag everything, placement, creative, ad groups, audiences that is running, right? From the buy side, it would be like, it would be like everything that we have set up literally in the ad group, let's say just the ad group, has to be tagged the same way. So it would be like almost the same code for the same category, You'll have something about the sizes. So let's say if you're running eight creative sizes in this one audience, then you'll have eight, uh, eight, eight placement, eight taxonomy for it, even though the first maybe four or five will be the same, right? It's just the, the creative that'll change. So it's a really robust process. So how realistic is this, Niels? Like when can we expect this taxonomy? Because what it will do for us is just tell us exactly like, oh, this is what's happening. And, you know, we're targeting this type of audience. It's great, right? Because the taxonomy is going to be hella long, but it's going to be great because we're going to be able to understand who's who, what, what, and not. So how realistic is it that every single publisher can come together, kind of cook out, dab it up, you know, and eat together, <laughs> share, share, the, <laughs> share the steaks, you know, how realistic is that? Yeah, so it's it's one it's one of those push and pull things, I think, a little bit, right? Because right now, publishers aren't jumping on board because mm-hmm. they don't know that this is something that the buyers would actually want, right? And because on the on the publisher side of things, in order to be able to pass this taxonomy, mm-hmm. it means that you need to manually label currently, mm-hmm. you need to manually label all of your content on that taxonomy, which is yeah. just. Why would I do that unless I know for a fact that it's working for other people, right? <laughs> so, so they they don't have a vested interest in doing that right now. Yeah. But uh, what we're starting to see is Google, like I said, is starting to adopt this and run beta tests for this. And you know, unfortunately, we run in an industry where you know Google says like oh, everybody jump, everybody goes okay. Google how high, right? And it's still the case. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's still the case. It's still going to be the case for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. That's why I'm paying attention now to these SDAs, because I know that if Google is starting to beta test with them, then it's like, okay, they see the value in this and it could be like a great solution moving forward. Right. Um, additionally, I think a lot of the manual work from being able to you know, categorize all of your content with new technology on the market, I think that it can become a lot more seamless, right? I don't want to, you know, start this whole conversation of chat GPT and open AI necessarily right now, but if you look at what is what is available on the market in terms of the technology, I can I can type into chat GPT right now, right? Or some type of AI yeah. classification and be like, how would you classify this content based mm-hmm. on these categorizations? And it'll give me some type of answer, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that a lot of publishers might be looking at these types of solutions and think right now, oh my goodness, this is a lot of work. And, you know, we don't know if this is going to actually be worthwhile just yet. But I think Mm -hmm. that once a lot of these types of content classifications uh, become a lot more seamless, and then we can start passing back a lot more data, then I think that's when the buy side starts saying, oh, everybody's doing this. We can scale these audiences. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Taxonomy is, <laughs> it's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a process, but I think it definitely is. It's definitely helpful. It's definitely insightful. And even though it takes a long time to set up, 
Um, it does benefit a lot when it comes to reporting. And again, we had a good conversation about measurement attribution at the beginning. And so it is definitely a good, good thing to do. Um, I know a lot of companies are already having like taxonomy internally uh, for reporting purposes. Like I know some of the media holding companies have that, et cetera. Um, so anybody else has a question? Okay. Think about your question. Again, let me know if you have any question. I don't know if anybody's raising their hands. I can't see everybody on my screen yet, but um, I have a one last question before we go into our closing segments real quick. How is that like, give me your one minute answer for SSP's relationship. How is that taxonomy going to look between the publisher and the SSP relationship, right? Because we don't really need the SSP at this point, right? So is this a valuable thing? still is our SSP is really important because we operate solely via SSPs, right? Like we buy our, we get our supply through that bridge, through that pipeline, which is the SSP or the seller, whichever. So what, what's your one minute answer for for this? How valuable is, is SSPs data? Do you think that SSPs are going <laughs> Digiday and AddExchange already called it. So y'all don't, don't, don't fall backwards if I say this, but the SSPs are going to disappear because of like where the industry is going because of how how niche and specialized we want to be, especially with measurement. Like, what what's your one minute take on this? Honestly, that's a that's a very tough question, and it's funny that you asked me this because I was reading all these types of articles recently on LinkedIn right? about this. Like SSP is dying. <laughs> what? Yeah, and uh, I, I of course read the first few articles about that when they're saying that SSPs are dying, and then Yahoo decided to de de uh, yeah. deprecate SSP, and <laughs> so um, timing. And then, yeah, <laughs> and then now, as of as of literally just maybe a, uh, earlier today and yesterday, I start seeing a flood of new articles in my news feed saying, "Oh, the SSPs aren't dying." <laughs> like, <laughs> that's ridiculous, like. We've, so to be honest with you, I, I, I don't really know how to answer that question because I think that uh, there are some people within uh, the industry that work on those sides of the business that have very, uh, <laughs> very like much more granular insights into those markets than I do. Uh, <laughs> well, as I can tell, I think that the SSPs are still valuable. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily see a reason for them to go away um, right away, but Again, so much changes within this industry. If somebody came to me tomorrow and said, you know, that this is the case, then I'd be like, okay, yeah, like, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. even at Dexerto, we're starting to look at more direct relationships mm -hmm. uh, with, with partners and, you know, cutting out the middlemen as many times as we can and as many places as we can. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to see where, where things are going to go. Yeah, I mean, I've had a few people in the community admit that they gotten reached out directly by SSPs. Um, so they're by bypassing basically the DSP or any other <laughs> vendor so that they can start setting relationship and have like those own supply pipelines set up for, for that particular agency or brand. Um, so, okay, so I like the, the positive end of the note here. So Leah, leave us with a, a quick wisdom. So what's Leave us on the wisdom, on the wise note. What is one thing you wish you knew then that you now know? So like, what is one thing you wish you knew when you first started that now with your OGNS, you know now, like? That's that's also a great question. Yeah, so when I started uh, at operations, I mm -hmm. guess the first thing that you think is like, wow, you're just overwhelmed with mm -hmm. so much, I mean, and it's it's almost the case where there's so much information to like pick up on and at the same time you have to be constantly learning and so in in french there's an expression which basically translates to you know you're burning the candles at both ends mm -hmm. right so it's like you're trying to catch up but at the same time you're trying to learn um when i started in this industry i guess i just didn't realize you know putting your head down and doing the work and and getting there you know, really relatively quickly, very quickly, I would say you soon become the person that's asking the questions and sounding dumb to being, mm -hmm. you know, the person that's getting invited on a podcast and talking mm -hmm. about. <laughs> right. I think uh, six years is, it, it seems like a short amount of time to become, you know, uh, I, get, I would say, you know, very well versed within an industry, but because of 
just the amount that things have changed and where things have gotten, uh, you can quickly find yourself at the top of some totem pole. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's great. I think the two keywords that I hear is asking, well, keywords, phrases, asking questions and having the courage to do so. So don't be afraid to ask the questions. It's up to you to voice to voice what's happening deep in your really, really smart head. Um, and don't don't be afraid because people receive it differently, too. So you, yeah, you're asking the like question that. for a reason. <laughs> what? Yeah, and sound dumb sometimes. Don't, yeah, uh, don't be afraid. Have the courage to sound dumb. I don't think any questions sound dumb, but have that courage and, and put yourself out there because that's how you're going to be. That's the difference between good and great. Like being able to really be humble, have humility enough to really know I, I don't know nothing anymore, <laughs> but I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep asking questions. That's the difference. So, Niels, thank you so much for dropping by. Oh, anybody has questions? I think I asked most of the questions. Going once. Good. Okay, cool. Um, thank you so much for dropping by on our community call. This is actually the first time I do that. And now that I did it, I'm going to go ahead and book the next few community calls <laughs> as a podcast, because I think it was really valuable. And also, um, you know, hearing what the rest of the community has to say is really cool too. So thank you so much for dropping by. If anybody has any questions and wants to keep up, like reach out to you, how can they do that? Yeah, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Um, feel free, absolutely, to share my LinkedIn. I can share it with you, Helen, and you can uh, yeah. post it to the community. Uh -huh. And I'm super open to talking to you guys uh, about basically anything because I'm sure there's, you know, I could equally be joining a podcast with any one of you guys on, I'm sure, talking about the buy side because there's obviously so much uh, that we don't know about each other's industry. So yeah. very happy to, to, you know, start any type of conversation. Yeah, do, do take him on it because he wouldn't offer if he didn't he didn't take seriously. So I, I do believe that networking is just this get on a call with somebody and asking questions, picking their brain from professional to personal growth. Okay, so y'all do that. And all of our guests' information will be in the show notes of the podcast, in the job description. And of course, in this community, I'll go ahead and drop it in a comment, which is a Slack community. So anybody interested, holla at us. Um, thank you. Thank you, everybody. We're actually at time. So I'm going to let everyone go. If you have any questions, don't forget to use Slack. Uh, Niels, if you think of anything, we would love to have you back. We'd love to have you again. So thank you for making the time. Thank you so much, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Bye, y'all.